and the first. The first is actually found in option A. Uh, option A, our green present over here. If you want to survive Christmas this year, if you want to make it through your relationships, I suggest to you this. The best gift of 2017, the candle. Now, the candle is one of the most practical gifts I think I've ever came along. If you're looking for the perfect gift for the in-laws, if you're looking uh, for that present, that daunting present that you know you need to buy for Secret Santa at work, the candle is the most practical present. Go candles every day. Uh, specifically, specifically, any candle uh, that either has uh, a sandalwood scent or a coconut scent. I believe it is one of the most, most exotic, nutty scents you can find in a candle. If you can find a candle that is also alliterated, uh, if you get like a beach bum banana candle scent, you are winning every time. Uh, at the same time, you can buy a candle uh, for your wife. It's a practical present for your wife. Fellas, I believe if you go for anything with a rose gold base, you will be winning. Uh, Wives, if you are looking for uh, a present for your husband or, or girlfriends, even for your boyfriends, I suggest the candle every day. Uh, you see, guys don't even know, uh, well, guys really only know two cents in the world, uh, Musk and Lynx Africa. So if you buy them a candle, you are winning. And the best thing about shopping in 2017 is that there are candles out there for vegans. There are soy candles. And that way, if your partner or the person you're buying for doesn't like the candle, they can eat it. You're winning every time by buying the candle, the most practical present for 2017. That is option A. Now, you're probably thinking, uh, Riley, what, what underlying metaphor or symbolism of using candles in church do you have for us tonight? And the answer is this. There's none. No, there's nothing. I just think candles are really cool. Uh, in fact, you can probably see that I'm actually a terrible gift giver. I don't have a wife, uh, surprisingly. And if I uh, had a girlfriend, she'd indefinitely be invisible. Uh, but... I do have an appreciation for candles. I just really back them as a gift for Christmas this year. Now, if you're holding out, if you're going, great, that's a great start, let me push you over to option B. Option B is potentially even more practical. In fact, if you want to survive Christmas this year, if you want to make it through in your relationships, if you want Christmas to be that thing that you enjoyed, uh, even when enjoyed this year, just like you did when you were younger, I want to flick you over to option B. And option B is... This, let me pull it out very carefully. Option B is to actually come along over the next four weeks and join us here as we unpack the surviving Christmas. You see, over the next four weeks, and this isn't my plug uh, to you just so we can fill the seats week in and, and week out, uh, but I believe that as we unpack some of these very things that prevent us from enjoying Christmas this year, the things that prevent us uh, from Christmas from being the most joyful time of the year for many of us, uh, Christmas is that thing that can cause us a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. Uh, and if it's not just enough for it to be exhausting and not just enough for it to be stressful. See, Christmas is a time of the year that should be enjoyed. It should be enjoyed and it should be enjoyed along people and it should be enjoyed because of healthy relationships. In fact, if you were here last week, uh, Chris, uh, and if you haven't met Chris before, he has a very young David Attenborough-like uh, accent. Uh, Chris actually jumped up and he actually talked about this idea of gossip. How gossip can be one of the things, one of the barriers that actually stops us from enjoying Christmas. Gossip is one of those things that can break trust in our relationship. He actually gave us an application of how we can overcome gossip. And that's something you're interested in. Feel free to jump up on our Beyond social media, on our Facebook or even our podcast or Instagram. And you can listen to the lovely voice of Chris on there. Uh, And I'm not saying, once again, I'm not saying that you should simply come here over the next three Sundays, or the next two Sundays now, uh, to check out what's, what's going on here. I'm saying that you should come back 
uh, because we believe that this series can actually be a gift to you, that it can actually be something that adds value to you. Because we get it. I know that Christmas can get messy. As work starts to wrap up, as things even start to pick up in the back end of the year, as we start to get more tired, we get more stressed, when the smallest decisions can all of a sudden become the biggest decisions, we can get so overwhelmed by the things that throughout Christmas we actually front up and we put this mask on as to what is actually happening on the inside, how we really feel. We start picking up really unhealthy coping mechanisms and all of a sudden we don't handle things how we normally do. And that's why tonight, as we jump into part two, we're actually going to talk about the very thing that, some, uh, the very thing that we all experience. In fact, this very thing is a thing that Michael Bublé experiences every year before uh, his album comes out once again for the 200th time in the back end of the year. We are going to talk about this idea of loneliness. Now, when you see or hear the word loneliness, the picture that probably comes to your head is someone sitting by themselves. Someone who's sitting by the bus stop, they've got Adele plugged into their ears, they're listening to Nickelback, we can only assume. We see their faces and we can't help but think they're trying to fit all the pieces of the world together. See, when we think of what loneliness looks like, we often think of someone who is alone. Someone who is socially awkward or even someone who is actually uh, sees themselves or you see them as an introvert. And you can tell who is an introvert in your family at the annual Christmas party. The introvert tends to be the person that hosts, the person that starts uh, ushering you out the door carefully, asking if you need any presents taken to the car. In fact, you can tell who the introvert is in your family when they start talking about the night in past tense. They start saying things like, well, wasn't that a lovely roast as they open the door for you so you can step into it? The introvert person in your family is the person who does the awkward laugh that concludes the night totally. <laughs> oh. See, the missile sound effect shows you the night is coming to an end. See, we can identify the introverts in our family. And a lot of the time, we associate loneliness to our friends that are introverts. And some of us see introverts as these shy or socially awkward creatures that are sensitive and don't want to be engaged with people for too long. When the reality is, on the spectrum of introverts and extroverts, a predominantly introverted person may be inclined to choose to be alone. For some, choosing to be alone is actually something uh, that allows them to recharge. In fact, finding space to be alone can be good. We can think a lot clearer in times we actually isolate ourselves from others. Here's the thing. Being an introvert or wanting to choose to be alone does not always bring about loneliness. Choosing to be alone doesn't mean we are lonely. Being alone does not mean we're lonely. You can be in a room full of people and you can feel lonely. Alone is when you're in isolation from others. It's just you. We often interpret that someone who sits alone is someone who's experiencing loneliness, that being alone is a bad thing. And whether they are typically an introverted or extroverted person, a lonely person doesn't choose to be alone. Rather, they can't help but feel alone. They feel this isolation, whether it is physical or mental. That's why we say that loneliness is this feeling of being disconnected. The feeling of being an outsider, outside of the loop. And lots of people who have great social skills, lots of people who have heaps of friends, lots of people who have heaps of followers on social media, financial security, a great reputation at work, or even successful, our family. All these people experience loneliness. Get this, loneliness even affects ants. Now, 
Upon my weekly reading of science today, and by weekly reading, I mean I just started reading it this week. But upon my readings, I found out that even ants are actually known to show a negative reaction to loneliness. Apparently, an ant that is socially withdrawn will actually struggle to digest their food properly. And as I continue to read more uh, about the, in the article and across some other articles, I actually found out that the lack of social interaction that ants experience, or when they do experience it, actually affects the regular status of their neural pathways. This actually causes, get this word, it, it causes a lack of gastrointestinal activity, which actually results, uh, results uh, that results, sorry, show that actually uh, isolated ants will only uh, live up to six days. Because of their inability to actually digest food properly, because of what's actually going on within their gut, because of something that's happening within their neural pathways, their lifespan is only six days, which is far different to an ant that actually lives within the colony, lives within the community that will live up to 66 days. You see, even for ants, connection is not just important. It's vital for their survival. See, there is good reason to actually be concerned about social connection, particularly in our current world. Loneliness is actually this growing health epidemic. We live in the most technological uh, connected age in the history of civilization. We can literally make a connection with someone instantly. There's a social network that is set up for us to merely click a button to send a message. We can FaceTime, we can Snapchat, We can do it through a photo and we can do it through a video in less than seconds. See, we are living in this world that is literally structured for connection. Yet, yet rates of loneliness are growing across schools. They're growing across universities. They're growing across workplaces. Growing across the church. They're growing across marriages and families every year. This feeling of being disconnected in the world we live in is as apparent as ever. And we see the stats climb every day. We see it through mental health problems, uh, that, that we are putting ourselves, that this loneliness is being put on the map from this growing health epidemic in the world with loneliness, seeing onsets of depression, onsets of anxiety, that we are disconnected from other people to the point that we are telling ourselves that nobody gets us. Nobody understands what we are feeling on the inside. We start uh, catastrophizing things. Negativity is prevalent in everything we do. And sometimes addiction can come into play. And I'm not just talking about addiction in the sense of drugs. I'm not just talking about addiction in the sense of alcohol. But more so, addiction through our own will to try and conquer loneliness, through trying to connect with things. So if we can't connect with each other, we will connect with anything we can find. We turn to Netflix. We turn to our phone. We turn to the closest screen. We turn to spending money on clothes and new purchases to try and make ourselves feel better. For some of us, we actually see the cure as romance. We put ourselves in these situations where we step into these short-term relationships that we know simply won't last. We turn to things we're good at, and we invest our time in everything uh, to do with what we're good at, merely to compensate our own self-worth. We bury ourselves in our sports, in our studies, in our job, our careers. We bring work home. And we let it become priority number one. We let it become priority number one all at the cost of our own time, all at the cost of our own energy, all at the cost of our relationship, our priorities, our dreams, our ambitions, and our family. And so loneliness draws us back 
to square one, only to spit us back out into the rinse of once again as we get caught in this cycle of feeling disconnected. We know that loneliness can, can look like a lot of things. Loneliness can be that person that doesn't fit in, that person at work who doesn't talk. But what's scary about loneliness is that we don't always see it in the face of those around us. We don't always see it in our colleagues, in our friends. We miss it. But it's hard to miss loneliness when we identify it on the faces of those we love. Our grandparents, our own parents, mum, dad. Loneliness is something we can see when it's smeared on the face of our children as they come home from school and when loneliness is eating away at people that are close to us we know that we need to change we need some type of new strategy we need a solution and we need it start because we all know what loneliness feels like this feeling of disconnection and it affects everyone but here's the thing here's the thing because even if all the information i told you tonight wasn't real even if my sources regarding ants wasn't a reliable source at all The very reason we know there's something wrong about loneliness tells us that we are not meant to live with it. In fact, the fact that loneliness actually happens to everyone, even those we think don't experience it, it tells us that we are actually designed for connection. We are designed for connection. And if that is the case, then, then how do we stay connected even in times when we feel disconnected? And to help us understand this a little bit more, I want to talk to you about a guy called... Solomon. Now, Solomon actually lived in the ancient uh, times of Israel. You can pick up a history book and check him out. Solomon actually wrote uh, a letter, wrote a book uh, to early Jews of Israel in this time. And he wrote to them uh, to help them and teach them how not to be absorbed by the world around them. To not be absorbed by the world around them, but rather live a life of wisdom. In one of his instructions in the book of Proverbs, Solomon actually writes this. He says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And what makes Solomon's words stick is actually the definition, the meaning of the word hard. You see, in what Solomon is writing to his Jewish audience, the the Jewish meaning and the Jewish definition of heart wasn't as much about anatomy as it was about the inner core of a person. Heart actually referred to someone's beliefs. The heart was the center of their feelings, their desires, their will, their choices. These are all things that make that person who he or she is. See, Solomon tells us that our thoughts often dictate who we become. When we place, uh, when we avoid placing our hope in something, it makes us sick. We find identity in the very thing that we actually struggle against. So placing our hope in our own emotional belief leads us to feel as if we are living a life that is far from perfect. So, what do we do? When we are lonely, who do we turn to? Who can we uh, trust? When we can't trust ourselves with our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, what do we do? Who can we talk to about how we are feeling? Who do we turn to when things are far from perfect? When when, uh, can we actually, where or when can we actually place our hope? Where do we draw that hope? from in these times that seem so muggy within our own head. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know where you place that hope. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're probably thinking, I'm going to hit you straight off with the answer that it's J-E-S-U-S. Uh, and, and knowing that, in the answer that I want to tell you tonight, that, that there is hope in the world for, for you not in something, but actually in someone that you feel uh, you can't necessarily see. 
I thought, what we do instead, we come from a different angle. We actually explore this question through someone uh, who knew this Jesus guy firsthand. In fact, this guy actually wrote a book purely to prove and purely to be a witness to everything that Jesus did when he was alive. And this guy's name is John. You see, John wrote an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, and he wrote it and titled it The Book of John. And uh, John was actually one of Jesus' boys. He was one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, John actually writes himself into his own book and calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, uh, which tells us that either John was actually Jesus' homeboy or he really wanted to be Jesus' homeboy. But either way, John got to observe what Jesus did throughout his life. And his writings hold a significant story for us as to how we can actually respond to loneliness. And it comes through that of an absolute scandal. It comes through this story that's very much like something we'd see on Home and Away or on Neighbours. But it gives us an answer as to how to respond to loneliness. So I'll walk you through it. And this story actually uh, kicks off uh, with John starting it off like this. He starts it off by setting the scene. He says, Jesus went across to Mount Olives. Now, I can only assume that this was a mountain filled with olives. But he was soon back in the temple again. And this story, the temple would have been the place where all the religious leaders, the Jewish scholars gathered and went to uh, so they could actually teach and come uh, and grasp an understanding of the law. But he was back at the temple soon again where swarms of people came to him. And Jesus sat down and taught them. Now, this would have really peeved off the religious scholars. This would have really annoyed the religious leaders called the Pharisees because they were the teachers of religious law. They were the people that everyone else was meant to be going to. And here's Jesus sitting on the steps of the temple talking and drawing a big crowd. John writes on, uh, the, religion, the religious scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They stood her in plain sight of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses, in the law, gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? And John writes, they were trying to trap him so they could bring charges against him. See, the religious leaders were actually trying to cause the biggest stitch-up they could. Here's a woman that's been caught in the moment of committing adultery. The religious leaders drag her out to say, Jesus, that the law that the ancient Israelites lived under, that the Jews, your people live under, tell us that this woman should be stoned for what she did. And we know our stuff, Jesus. We've read the textbooks. We know what needs to happen. That's why John writes, it was clear it was a trap. Because it's clear that the religious leaders were looking to trap Jesus. Because if this woman was seen in the act of adultery, then both parties should have been brought forward, not just the woman. This was a grade A stitch up by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, however, were not entirely wrong in what they were doing. In fact, they were right. This the law that were for the Jews did say that the woman should have been stoned. See, and it came down to Jesus. Jesus was singled out in this crown. He was stuck in a predicament. If Jesus was to say that the woman should not have been stoned, they would accuse him of violating the law, and ultimately his rep would be gone. However, if Jesus was to execute her, they would report him to the Romans, who actually did not permit Jews uh, to actually carry out their own executions. See, Jesus couldn't win in this situation. So how would he respond? Now, if I was caught out in this spot, I'd probably be running away or flipping a coin. Jesus was confronted with an unexpected crowd of people in front of him waiting for a response. And John writes that this is what Jesus does 
next. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. What a way to go about it. That's the quickest way to avoid confrontation. Jesus just went to the ground, head down, and started writing in the dirt in front of him. Could you imagine using that in the confrontation of the workplace or even confrontation at home? Just going straight to the ground and writing in the dirt. In fact, Jesus did this uh, for so long, this bizarre response. He does it for long enough that the Pharisees become irritated. And John writes, they kept at him, badgering him, demanding a response. Jesus couldn't even be bothered to respond, but they kept at him until he straightened up and said, the sinless one among you, you go first, you throw the stone. Jesus puts out his hand and shows them any of you here that stand here that's never stuffed up in your life, any of you here that's never hurt someone else knowing that it wasn't a mistake, knowing that you were doing it intentionally, any of you here that have never made a perfect decision in your life, anyone here that instead of taking the blame for yourself and some of the things that you've done, you've actually put it on somebody, somebody else, any of you here who have ever felt disconnected before, any of you here that have ever felt like an outsider here, You go ahead. You throw the stone first. He offers it to the Pharisees. He offers it to the crown. And then he goes back. He bends down again and he wrote some more in the dirt. Jesus went back to doodling in dirt. And in hearing that, John writes, they walked away, one after another, beginning with the oldest. They left. And John writes, the woman was left alone. It's one thing to try and figure out how the Pharisees were feeling in this situation. But as for the woman, she, she'd been dragged straight from the scene of the scandal to being in front of a group of people she's never met before, to being put in the middle of it, confronted with faces looking down at her, waiting to see if she would live or if she would die. She was not prepared for it. And John gives us the details of uh, how she ended up in front of Jesus, but John doesn't give us the details of what actually happened in this woman's life before she was dragged out into the streets in light of what could have been uh, potential broken relationships, in light of her past and what could have been one fling or multiple, in light of what uh, happened, in in light of uh, that missing sense of self-worth inside of her, in light of what could have been her way to actually seek out some type of hope in brokenness, in light of what could have been someone experiencing loneliness. John writes, the woman was left alone, isolated with no one else around her. But Jesus didn't convict the woman. The woman. She didn't, uh, he didn't condone her actions either or what she had done. The laws the Jews lived under said that Jesus should have made sure she did die, though. The Pharisees of the temple were right. They were insiders of the religious life. They did know the law. They got what they were saying. And here is a woman who is an absolute outsider. She's the lowest of lows in this situation. And if not stoned, Jesus should have at least made sure that she did stay alone, that she would be left on the outside side. But instead, Jesus stood up. Jesus stood up when this woman was left alone and spoke to her. After finishing his dirt, Mona Lisa, he stood up and went to her and talked to her. And Jesus says, woman, where are they? Does no one find you guilty? And she replied, no one, master. Jesus says, neither do I. Go on your way and leave your life of sin. Instead, Jesus goes up to her and talks to her. In that moment of being alone, he tells her to leave a life of sin with a changed heart. Why does he do it? 
Because he knows of her imperfections. He knew of the imperfections of the crowd, of the religious leaders. The one thing that Jesus knew connected all of them was the, their nature to rebel and hurt one another. They were flawed in their imperfections, that it was flawed in the religious leaders' understanding that though they were scholars and insiders of the temple, though they knew what they were talking about, that they knew what it meant to be an outsider themselves. Here's the thing, because we are all connected by our imperfection. A great lyricist and philosopher by the name of Hannah Montana once said that nobody's perfect. Now, I've got no idea what a life of perfect decisions look like because I've never actually made one. See, we live an imperfect life, a life where we make choices, act, feel, think, and just behave in ways to push against our own insecurities and who we really know of ourselves within. So, who do we turn to? Who do we turn to? Someone who can listen to us, someone who can affirm us, someone we can spend time with, someone who cares about us, someone who loved us from the start. Maybe that person for you is a colleague. Maybe that person for you is a friend. Maybe a family member comes to mind straight away. Mum, dad, grandparent, a brother or a sister. Maybe for you, it's all of the above. Or maybe it's none. The thing is that loneliness is not a private matter. It's something we should be more open about because it's something that we all experience. It's almost too easy to keep hidden within our own introverted or extroverted shells. It can be easy to mask. In fact, it would not be difficult for anyone to walk into school, to walk into uni, to walk into the job site, to home, into church with the feeling of disconnection. It's the reason uh, we pretend we're sending emails when really we're just smashing the keyboard. It's the reason we pick up our phone when we're at a party and pretend we're texting someone. It's the reason we pick up our phone and take a phone call just to seem like we're actually making a connection with somebody else. We know what it feels like, the feeling of being lonely. So, how do we respond? If we are wired for community, we need to be in community. If we are to respond, we need to act within ourselves first. To help us with that, this week, I want to give you two application points. In fact, the first one uh, is super practical. And we do this thing at Beyond called Four Monday because we believe what's the point in coming to church on Sunday if it's not going to change you, it's not going to impact you for Monday. And this week's Four Monday comes in two parts. Here's the first part, and it's going to come up on the screen real soon, but it is super practical. And this week, to overcome loneliness, you should overcome loneliness by actually making yourself known. So we often get frustrated at ourselves and the decisions we make when we are socially isolated and trying to fix things by ourselves. We can start asking ourselves why we acted the way we did, why we said the things we did, why we did the things that we did. But rarely ever do you walk away after giving a random act of kindness to someone else and ask ourselves and ask ourselves why we actually acted like that. Rarely ever when we show love to somebody else do we ask why we did it. We know why we did it. It makes us feel good, and others feel better. And so you can't impact everyone. You know that, I know that, but you can impact someone. You can impact someone this week merely through sending them a text. You can impact someone this week by handwriting a message, shouting someone's coffee that's in front of you in the line, uh, ring that person you've been meaning to touch base with. You can ask someone not just how the day has been, what's actually happened for them this week. You can overcome loneliness this week by making yourself known to others. Change your own thinking and feelings by changing your behavior, by putting other people first. And if you're a follower 
of Jesus, if even broken people matter to Jesus, then, then people should matter to people. If you know what it's like to be alone in a room and have someone rescue you in that moment, you have every reason to go out and do the same. And if you're someone tonight who's actually feeling that overwhelming sensation of trying to juggle everything leading up to Christmas, or maybe you've been feeling something within you for a while now that you know that is simply not right, if you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you're not, I want to give you an extra application. So going back to our mate Solomon, Solomon wrote, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but he didn't end it there. He said, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a good break can turn life around. Our heart gets sick when we feel and we avoid dealing with the fact that we are actually in isolation. We feel like we're on the outside. We get bitter towards other, others. We cut people off from our friendship circles. We get frustrated at our mates. And we hold on to grudges. Sometimes we feel guilty about something we have done or embarrassed by something we have done. Instead of owning up to our mistakes, what we do instead is actually point blame on others. We point our loneliness back to the people around us. Solomon writes, but a sudden good break can turn life around. A corruption of connection can actually rewire things. Stopping and being still is sometimes our best method to refocus our thoughts and emotions. But it takes a break. It takes a pause and it takes rest and a time to press into something or someone. So this full Monday, this full Monday actually comes through the form of a gift. Uh, now, the gift will most likely expire within four hours, just so you know. It's a pretty cheap gift, but I've heard it's the most practical gift of 2017. And in fact, you'll find this gift on the bar tables at the back and at the Connect desk as well. But this week for you, I want to ask you and invite you, as you leave here tonight, there's candles that are going to be set up on the bar tables and at the Connect desk. This week, I invite you to actually take a candle or even if you don't, and actually spend some time to actually give yourself a break and spend the time to actually have space to refocus, to refocus and ask the question of where do I place my hope? You see, you can light this candle. You can spend five minutes. You can spend 15 minutes, maybe less or maybe more, just to sit, just to be still and answer the question in your own head. You can answer it in your head, you can answer it on paper, you can jot notes down on your phone. Where do I place my home? In light of when I feel disconnected, in light of loneliness, when I'm sad, when I'm anxious, when I'm stressed, fearful, happy, when I'm overwhelmed, when you're annoyed at your friends, frustrated with your partner, who do you trust more than yourself to actually guide you? Who do you trust more than yourselves to comfort you? Who do you trust that you can actually connect with? It's a question of who do I trust who do I talk to about what's going on or who do I need to talk to about who can keep me grounded? I want to challenge you. If loneliness is the one problem you have, if loneliness for you could be the one problem you have because you're actually made in the image of God. What would it look like for you to actually spend some time in prayer? Maybe that word for you is a weird word. Maybe it's never really made sense. Maybe it's just something you've seen people do that looks weird. But what would it look like for you this week to merely sit in rest. You don't even need to close your eyes, but just spend time talking to a God that wants to draw close to you. You don't even need to close your eyes. But draw close back to the very one who sits waiting patiently so he can listen to you, to love you, to care and to give you hope. So in the times when you feel like you're sitting in the dirt alone, when you're confronted by the world around you, you can find rest in knowing there is a who that you can draw back to. Because he wants to draw close to you.
Because just like the woman who committed adultery, we too have all done things that have hurt others. Christians have said things that have hurt others. We are just as bad, just as imperfect as the person next to us. Perfection and the feeling of being an outsider is something that you've been struggling with for far too long and have never confronted in light of your friendship, in light of what happens at work or even in your family circles or even your marriage. The break you've been looking for, the break we've all been searching for came 2,000 years ago. The break we all need, the break that gives us ultimate hope, the break that gives us ultimate connection came when Jesus actually wrote himself into the story of our imperfection, of our loneliness. He wrote himself in, not with the stone to cast judgment, but wrote himself in with nails in his hand. He died so that we have an opportunity to reconnect with the source of hope that will never leave us merely satisfied or content, but will give eternal comfort and eternal life. Because whether in our friendship circles, whether in our family, meaningful connection is found in the things we go back to. Next time you see a lone ant, you'll probably think twice about stepping on him because you'll know where he's meant to be. If we want to live a life of, of dis, outside of disconnection, a life that resists loneliness at every corner, we need to be intentional in prioritizing and pressing into intimate relationships. So, what could a relationship with a God look like for you? A God who is ready to stand between you and the imperfections of the world and the imperfections of yourself. What could it mean for you in light of how you love others and how you loved yourself? What could it mean for you to draw hope in the darkness of loneliness, being an outsider? What could it look like to draw that hope from a God that waits with an open hand and a heart that desires an intimate relationship and an intimate connection with you? I'd love to pray for you. And then the band's going to play and walk through what's happening within the rest of our service. God, we just thank you that in times when Things seem so messy. In the back of the year, when stress and anxiety can come into the play, Lord, when we get stuck in this cycle of confusion or frustration, and also this cycle of loneliness, Lord, that we know that we can press into you. God, we just pray this week we can prioritize our time to have, to have rest, to take that break, and to spend time actually getting to know you more, God, so we can get to know more about ourselves and more about the people around us. Amen.